Crossway Church Sermon Audio. We're honored to have you with us. And just before I pray, we have to say goodbye to some good friends, uh, Chad and Natalie Four, their sweet family. Where are they at? They here? Chad and Natalie? There they are. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, they have been members of Crossway for several years. It's a, it's a good distance from their home. And so they've decided to go to a church closer to home, which um, I'm bitter about and angry, but I get and understand. No, really, we're, we're so grateful for you both. You've been a blessing to Crossway. Uh, we know that the church that you're going to now, which is a good, solid gospel church, they're going to be blessed to have you, and we want, we want the Lord to give you favor there and to use you there um, and to maybe integrate uh, your efforts in the neighborhood with church life and to make it better for um, a better gospel witness in every way. So we're going to pray for Chad and Natalie and... Uh, send them out today. This is the last Sunday with us, so please do say your goodbyes. We will miss you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you. Uh, we know, God, that in this life, there are still goodbyes. Um, we also know that they're temporary, that in the new heavens and new earth, um, we won't have farewells like this. Uh, and God, we, um, we know they're not that far away anyway. We just won't see them here as much. And so we praise you in the knowledge that our brother and sister, their family, they're, they're doing your work where you call them. That this is only temporary for all of us. That there's a greater fulfillment of our fellowship to come. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless them and strengthen them and use them wonderfully in the church they're going to. Uh, let their arrival there bring an immediate refreshment to that local body. Lord, we thank you for this day where we get to sit under your word. We ask your help and strength and your blessing. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, we should express our love for the fours, right? Why don't you? Well, you've probably heard the expression, the best defense is a good offense. I'm sure you have. It's well known. It's been around for in some form, actually, or another for a very long time. And it appears that pretty much every ancient people group had some sense of this. And even to this day, our sports teams use this all the time. To be on the attack means they have to do less defense. It means there's, it's less likely, if they're on the attack, that the other team will score. And so this idea of a good defense or the best defense is a good offense. That idea, it's used in sports, it's used in games like chess, it's used in politics, and it's even used, unfortunately, in relationships. It shouldn't be used in relationships, not like that. Militaries all over the world use this idea 
constantly. George Washington even wrote about it. He said, offensive operations oftentimes is the surest, if not the only, means of defense. And basically what it's getting at is those that are attacking have an advantage because they keep their enemy on the defense, which means that their enemy cannot attack. And that idea, by the way, it's actually a principle of war that the United States military uses, known as the strategic offensive principle of war. Pretty straightforward. Strategic offensive principle of war. Now, part of the brilliance of this principle, and I think why it's effective, is that it achieves multiple goals at one time. So it puts the enemy on the defensive, it makes you more likely to win, and it protects your valuables or valuable people from being attacked. And by the way, that was one of the stated reasons for the Gulf War and after 9-11 in 2001. The idea was that by attacking Afghanistan, we were told that it would reduce potential incidents of terrorist attack on U.S. soil. So by attacking there, it would draw the terrorist attention there. They would have to defend their own camps, and it would keep their attention off of U.S. soil. And that does seem to have worked to some degree, but I'm not here this morning to talk about strategy and politics. I'm seeking to point out an example of how one strategy fulfills multiple purposes at once. If you attack, you have a better chance of winning, and you protect against attack. Hence, the best defense is a good offense. Now, most often in our lives, you and I are doing good if we've clarified one goal and have pursued it well. How many days do we go through, or how many hours do we go through where we're thinking, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I'm just, I'm just trying to wake up. I'm just trying to make it through this day let alone having multiple goals, let alone having one goal, let alone having multiple goals. And so many times, you and I are walking through life without any clear purpose or goal. And then, if we get a clear purpose, or we have a clear goal that we're trying to achieve, we can feel pretty good about ourselves. We say, I know what I'm doing. We have conviction, we have clarity, we have direction. Put our energy there. But the idea of consciously working on multiple levels of purpose... At any given time, it's actually quite daunting. It's hard for us to do. We just don't know enough to do that. We don't know the future. We don't always know our own limitations. We don't know what other people are willing to do. We don't always have a good grasp of the the sense of the resources that are at our disposal. And I think because of these limitations, we're quite right to seek application of the psalmist's words when he says, Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This is a sober assessment of himself. And what he means to say is my trust is in you and my dependence is on you. I I, I know I have responsibility, but I know how limited I am. And so I don't want to act like I've got it all covered because I know I don't. I can't operate with so many purposes at one time, at least not consciously, not intentionally. Not all the time. And the goal of this message this morning, and I think our text 
is not to call you, you Christian, to fulfill goals or to have a purpose for what you're doing in life, as worthy as that may be. There's a time for goal setting, and, and it's good to understand purpose. I think we need that. But that's not the purpose of this message, and I don't believe this text. There's something here that's more important for the Christian. A powerful truth comes through in Joshua chapter 6 that holds the Christian firm. It's something we must know and we must keep in our awareness as we face life. It can establish us and keep us firm in the faith. It can keep us from going in the wrong direction. It can keep us from from, uh, uh, being zealous without wisdom. It can keep us from going off the cliff. It can keep us from being shipwrecked. It can keep us from making so many regrettable errors and mistakes. I'm stating it like this this morning. I think you can state it in other ways, but let me say it like this. Interpret life knowing that when God works, all of his purposes all at once are being fulfilled. In other words, what's hard for us to do, to attack multiple purposes at one time, is what God does for a living. And we need to know that. When we face something in life, we need to have an interpreted, interpretive grid that is coming out of a knowledge of who God is. This is what the Christian needs to go deep to be established. I need to know who God is and what he's like. So that when I face something in life, I know immediately, responsibly, reflexively, that what I see is not all that's going on. That there's far more happening. There's a certain knowledge that we can gain about God and we need to have this clear in our hearts and our minds and that knowledge that says that God has good purposes and he's always working to fulfill those purposes in everything he does in all of his working and he's always working. He's fulfilling them and he's going to fulfill every single one of them and whenever he works in this world whenever he works in our lives whenever he's working in your life whatever he's doing right now in your life he's working on multiple levels of purpose and he never fails to bring them to fruition you can count on that and that knowledge is to be so central to the christian so tied to our souls that it controls our reactions As I was saying, if something confronts us, how will we react? Well, if we have this knowledge as an interpretive grid, if we interpret life in this way, it's going to change our reaction. It's going to steady us and cause us to be more sure. So let's gain this interpretive tool today. Let's let's gain the grid through which to look at life. Let's interpret life, all of it, knowing That when God works, all of his purposes are being fulfilled. Now, I'm going to break this story down, the story of Joshua chapter 6 into three parts. It's going to give us knowledge of God so we can interpret life. First, we're going to see in this story a strategy only the Lord could understand. A strategy only the Lord could understand. You may know the story well. You may know the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. I think it's Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. I don't understand that, but I think that's the name. Doug affirms, so I know I'm on good ground. Well, you may know the story, but when I read, please follow along with fresh ears and thinking it through. As I read it to you, consider what Joshua 
is being commanded to do. And imagine your response. What would you do if you heard about these commands, that the Lord was telling you something like this? Consider some of the context here. They finally crossed the Jordan, miraculously so. But they're across the Jordan. They're in the promised land. Jericho is their first attempt on a city. They've done some fighting, but not a ton of fighting. They're not exactly a warring nation yet. This is the first city, and it's a garrison city. It's a military outpost. They can't just leave it there. They have to deal with it. It has high, doubled walls. It's well-situated. If they don't overtake the city, they can't go anywhere because they'll have this army behind them with this powerful stronghold. But at the same time, they know they need to deal with it. It's all new to them. Keep that in mind as you hear the commands of God and as you look at this with fresh eyes. Joshua chapter 6, let me read for you verses 1 through 7. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out. And none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. So now you can imagine Joshua, grateful that the Lord is speaking to him, and thinking to himself, Okay, great. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to me. What's the plan? How are we going to do this? But the plan seems... A bit odd. Okay, here's the plan. We're going to do some marching. We're going to do some horn blowing. And we're going to do some shouting. And that's it. That's the plan. Now, now maybe to help us understand it, think of this on a much smaller, much more relatable scale. Something that doesn't even cost anyone a life. Think about it with baseball. Let's say we're on a baseball team or a softball team. And the coach says, okay, here's the deal. Everyone gather around. Here's a whistle. Everybody take a whistle. Here you go. Now, when the game starts, we're all going to spread out and start doing jumping jacks. And then when I blow my whistle, you blow your whistle, and the scoreboard will say, 100 to 0, we win. You look at your coach and you say, we love you, but you can't coach anymore. In fact, you need to leave the vicinity so we get down to business. If it was football, it's like the coach saying, hey, listen, when the quarterback yells hike, you all run to midfield and you start yelling at the top of your lungs, and guess what? We win. It doesn't work like that. It's a fight. It's a physical battle. And so from a natural standpoint, what Joshua has been told 
and I use this word with trepidation, I mean it from a human standpoint. What Joshua has been told from a human standpoint, it seems nonsensical, does it not? I mean, it seems downright foolish. Now, you've heard the expression, a face only a mother could love. I used to look in the mirror when I was younger, and I thought, oh, my goodness, everybody can love this face. (laughs) But that was my youthful ignorance and arrogance. And the older I get, I think not only do I see more clearly, but things are actually changing. I look in the mirror, and I just, my heart just, I feel so bad for my wife. <laughs> and you, you know how this is like, you know, recently we're watching, we're looking at pictures of the, of the wedding. And just, you know, you see yourself and you're like, oh my goodness. That's what I look like. And, and I think it's just going to get worse. <laughs> but, you know, I know I'm not the only one. There are some other faces in this room <laughs> that only a mother could love. Just men, though. None of the women. None of the women. But you've heard that expression, a face that only a mother could love. Well, here's the deal. This is a strategy only God could comprehend. A strategy only the Lord would come up with. This is not a strategy that any military commander in the history of human history would even like. And yet this is what God prescribes. Now, can't you see yourself thinking something like, this is our first city, we have no idea how to take over a city, those walls are not going to go down on their own. In other words, can't you see yourself in unbelief? And if you think this way, right, in life, if you look at things from just the perspective of your own purpose, rather than the multiple layers of what God's accomplishing. And, and you think that way, and you see what God has in front of you, you say, my goodness, none of this makes sense. Guess what? You're going to be anxious. You're going to be fearful. You're going to be depressed. And you're going to be angry. All of these are opposite from the fruit of the Spirit and from what faith wants to bear in us. When we think like this in our Christian lives, we're failing to interpret the moment with a proper knowledge of who God is and and what He's already done and what He's capable of. We see the problem, we view it just from our vantage point. Instead of reinforming our souls that God has a ton going on, way more than we can comprehend, and He's all good, and He's going to accomplish every bit of it. He's not in over His head. He's not confused. He knows exactly what he wants to accomplish and how he wants to accomplish it. And the how of what he's accomplishing, the how is going to accomplish the what he wants to accomplish and the why of why of, of what he's going to accomplish, the reason for him accomplishing it. That's never going to change. God's got the, he's got the how and he's got the what and he's got the why all wrapped up in one on every one of his purposes all at once, all at the same time. It's never going to change. Now, you know who didn't interpret this simply from his own vantage point, simply from the human, nonsensical, the fleshly, the worldly? You know who didn't do that? No matter how tempted he may have been, no matter how much this responsibility was falling on him, no matter what was going on in his heart, we're not told. Joshua does not interpret it that way. And what an example he is to us. 
And in this way, he perfectly foreshadows the Lord, who when given his mission and given his commands, went immediately and obeyed. Joshua does the same. He says, okay, God wants us to march, blow horns, uh, be quiet, um, and then shout. That's what we'll do. He gives the command. He gets the people in line. He says, Here's we, here we go. This is what we're going to do. And there's, not a, there's no sense of him doubting it. His obedience, Joshua's obedience, is an expression of faith in God. With the knowledge of God providing his interpretation of the moment. See, he knew God. You know what I mean by that? Joshua learned the lessons from the past. He, he had several lessons in his life. The most recent one had been running into the commander of the Lord, the Lord's army, who we believe is the Lord himself. And just before that, the parting of, of the Jordan River so that they could cross over. And so he has these lessons in mind. He's not going to let them go. And so when God speaks, he doesn't think, oh my goodness, that's nonsensical. How could I ever do that? I'm so anxious. I'm so fearful. I'm so depressed. I'm so angry. I'm embittered. He doesn't do that. He says, okay, here we go. Everybody, get your horns. Get ready to march. Get the military men. Here we go. And you know, you and I can fail to do what Joshua's done here. We can forget. We can fail to remember How God has met us and provided for us in the past. We can live in the moment right now. Can you believe this? It's true. You and I can live in the moment right now as if God's never provided for us before. As if he's never met us. As if he's never answered our prayers before. And when we do that, we're, we're forgetting the lessons that God's already established in our lives. God has met you. He's provided for you. He's answered in so many clear ways. And so when those times come, endeavor, mark those times in your mind, in your soul, in your heart. Say to yourself, soul, I will never forget this moment. I must not. I must remember this moment right here on this ground, on on my knees, or when I heard the news that God provided. I remember some of those moments in my life. And it has a steadying, establishing effect. You know, one of those times is baptism. Your baptism. Think back on that day when you had the faith to proclaim, I want everyone to know I belong to Jesus Christ, just like Emily did this morning. When you look closely at these commands of God, his strategy here in the first seven verses, you see that these commands reveal a lot about God. They give us knowledge about him. He says, march around the city. March around the city. Think of that. It's, it's like marking out his territory. Here's a city. God's people march around it. By the way, it had been about a half a mile around. So it's not that far. But at the time, it was a, it was a, a pretty large city. And so they're marching around that, and they're marking out their territory. Think about that. God is marking out his territory. He's, what is he saying to this territory? He's saying, my wrath is coming within this circle, right in here. See this? Here it is. And then the ram's horns blowing before the ark. 
The Ark of the Covenant is representative of God's throne. It, it, it demonstrates his presence. And, and so Joshua has the, the army in front and the army behind. And so you get the sense that God's throne is right in the middle. And that's the center point of the army marching around the city is God's throne, his presence. And they're blowing ram's horns. You know, it's, that's indicating that they're starting a war. The ram's horn was a, a call to war. And they're blowing these horns, the scripture tells us later, continually as they go around the city. God's throne walking around. So, so this isn't focused on Joshua or his generals or even the priests. It's focused on God. God is marching around the city, marking it out, saying, I'm going to war with you, Jericho. And then you see these numbers. There's seven priests with seven horns. They're going to march for seven days. And on the last day, they're going to go around seven times. As you may remember from our series in Revelation, seven has that sense of completion. It's the number of perfection or wholeness or completion. And you know what was complete? The measure of the sin of the people of Jericho or the Amorites. God said, that's enough. So all this perfection, all this completion, well, it's the fulfillment for his people, but it's also the completion of their sin. You might remember in Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, he says to him about his descendants, they shall come back here, meaning the promised land, in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, but now it is. Their sin, their immorality, their child sacrifice, their idolatry, it had been enough for God. And it was time for the completion of his wrath. Right here, as we look at that strategy and what it communicates, we realize again that this whole campaign is about God himself. It's not that Joshua and the Israelites are unimportant. God's going to make that clear too. I'll show you in a little bit, Lord willing. But what is going to come through loud and clear is that the Israelites are doing God's work. It's not that God's doing their work. It's not that God said to them, listen, I really want to be on your side of things. No, it's God saying to the Israelites, you need to be on my side. So much so that the strategy for for taking the city is nonsensical to human reasoning so that it can only make sense if God is the one that this is about. In other words, one of the purposes God is fulfilling through Israel attacking Jericho is to communicate his glory on the earth. That all of this creation, all of this universe, all of this earth, all of this life, it's about his glory. The world can't accept that. The unbeliever can't accept that. So let's take that down to you and me. So often our lives don't seem to make sense whatsoever. Seems like what's happening to us, what's going on, it it just, we can't figure it out. And, And what do we say in those moments? I wouldn't be surprised if every single adult here has said this to God at some point. Or we turn to God and we say, how is this good? How could this possibly be good? How could this possibly be what you will and want? And in that moment, we're forgetting that God is accomplishing multiple good purposes all at once. And the first one, is that this is all about his glory. So God's going to be glorified 
through us. And if we have that knowledge, we can be very secure in it. Because what it says is it, it takes the direction of my life. It takes the happenings. It takes the result. It, it takes the end of my life out of my hands. It says, well, Lord, I'm here for your glory. And whatever you want to do in my life to bring you glory, please do. Please do. Now, I want to take a moment to speak to unbelievers here. I want you to notice something very clearly. This is good for all of us, but if you haven't trusted Jesus, please pay attention. There was time to repent. God has already shown through Rahab that he would receive the repentant with amazing grace and save them from his wrath. Not just them, but everyone close to them, everyone that believed their word, their message. And so what happens? A whole day goes by. Here comes the march. Here they go around. And then a whole day goes by. The whole time the march is happening, and the whole day goes by. And then the next day. And then the next day. And then the next day. Not three times. Seven times on the last day, seven times. There was time to repent. There was time to turn. But what does Jericho do? What do these Amorites do? What do these that are rebellious against God do? What do they do? They stay shut up, shut in. They don't run out and say, please spare us. They don't send an emissary and say, what do we need to do? They say, well, let's just see. Let's just see what happens here. Let's just see if God's powerful enough. You know, it reminds me of the, the Filipino president who just this past week said, I'll quit if anyone can prove to me that there's a God. Listen, open your eyes. See the evidence for the existence of God. Run to him for mercy. You don't want to wait for the proof because when the proof comes, it's too late to trust him. There was time here. And so you still have time to turn. Do so today. Do so today. You'll see the grace and the mercy of God. Well, not only do we see a strategy that only the Lord can understand, but we see a consecration that could only point to the Lord. Now, we know that God's glory is one of his big purposes for this dramatic moment in the life of Israel. And so then we can expect that God is going to call his people to certain behaviors. So so that's going to consecrate them for the task of bringing him glory. So consecrating means to make or declare something sacred. In fact, God has done that with every Christian, right? Because he's declared us to be righteous. He's, he's done this in our justification. If you trust Jesus, his blood pays for our sin. His life pays the penalty for our sin. And so God declares us as righteous. He consecrates us. Now, as I read verses 8 to 20 to you, look out for what God is calling them to in consecration. So, Joshua chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. Verse 9. The armed men were walking before them, the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blow continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. 
And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city on the same manner seven times. It was on that day that they marched around the city seven times. Verse 16. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that are within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Let me stop there. So that brings us right up to the seventh day and the seven times of marching. And and right then, Joshua gives the final command. And it brings us right to that point. And beyond what we've already noted, the marching and the horn blowing and the carrying the ark, now we see that they're consecrated with silence. That these military men marching around the city over and over, they're not supposed to be talking. Think about this. They know they're going to win, but they're not supposed to boast. They're not supposed to trash talk. Which many people today, they view that as a psychological advantage to trash talk, right? Well, right here, God says, don't do that. That might be what the pagans do. That might be what everyone else is to do. But you're not to do that. They're not laughing. Do you know what they're doing? They're sending a signal through their silence. God's saying to Jericho, hey, Jericho, this is serious. This is sober. This is it. And they're communicating confidence through their silence. They're, they're saying, we have no compulsion to respond to you. If you're jeering us, we don't have to say anything. We don't have to respond. We don't feel the need to defend ourselves. Our actions are going to say it all because God is going to speak in the end. And so their silence was a critical part of what God is saying to Jericho and how God is teaching the Israelites. He's consecrating them. You see how important our words are in this life. And this is why the scriptures teach so much about speech. It's why James James teaches us that the tongue is so often out of control and often does the devil's work and how critical it is for us to think rightly about speech and then to speak rightly. Not only were they to be silent, but they were to be consecrated in their shouting because a time for shouting is going to come. And for Israel, it's a shout of strength, of confidence in the Lord's presence. But for Jericho, that sound of their shout is a terrible sound that announces the arrival of God's wrath. People and animals and other things were devoted to destruction. By the way, there's no good English word or phrase to translate the Hebrew word that we translated to devoted to destruction but that, that phrase, devoted to destruction, is probably the best way to say it, even though it's a little hard to get our head around it, right? You, typically, if you think of something's devoted, you wouldn't devote it to destruction. 
You would devote it to a, a, a sort of a high place, a set-apart place, a, a place where you're not going to touch it, a place where it can't be damaged. But here is the idea of devoting something, but setting it apart for destruction, not for reward, but to, to be ruined, to be destroyed, to be killed. And the idea here is that these objects that are made holy in a sense, in that they're set apart for something in particular, they're set apart for wrath. God is saying, see that right there? It's kind of like when he marked out the city, saying this right here, it's, it's meant to be destroyed. That's what it's there for. It's a vessel of wrath. And so that's what's happening there. They're devoted to destruction, meaning it can't be spared. And not only can it not be spared, that when God pours out a destruction on that item, it satisfies his wrath. That's what it's there for. And therefore, the people of Israel, not only can't they spare lives and can't they spare cattle, they can't take the herds and make it for their riches. It's not about enriching them. They can't take the silver and gold items. Those are going to be devoted to the house of the Lord. And so they're not to steal any of that. They're not to take it to themselves. If they take the spoils, it's stealing it. Why? Because it's about glorifying God and showing his rightness. And this required that God's people consecrate themselves. They needed to say to themselves, I will not take anything that God has set apart for his destruction. I don't want to dabble with it. I don't want to play around with it. I don't want to consider it. I don't want it. You know, every Christian is at war right now. This war that the people of Israel are in, and this concept of devoting things to destruction... It's all a metaphor for the Christian life. You remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? He writes, now these things, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, what Israel was going through in the wilderness with Moses and beyond in the promised land, that happened to Israel as an example. And that example is to instruct you and I. And so this idea that there are, there are certain things, there's certain concepts, there's certain values, there's certain principles in this world that God will utterly destroy, that's real. And you and I shouldn't dabble with them. And so we should learn that some things we just need to lay off altogether. It's okay to say no to some things to some ideas, to some principles in this life. Depending on what they are, obviously. But also, it's important for us to remember that we should be sober with our words. There is absolutely a time for laughter, but it's not always a time for laughter. Think about this. Why are professional comedians among the saddest and most bitter people on the planet? Why is that? Not always, but often. And you hear about it at some point in their lives. Well, here's why. Because laughter is not always the best medicine. So let me ask you to evaluate your own life, your own patterns of speech. Are there times when you have sober speech, when you are utterly honest, when you really get down to what matters, when you're quiet and listening, 
rather than talking, rather than taking command of every situation and controlling with your words, rather than just filling your, your, your world with what you think and your words, rather than joking all the time, are you able to talk about what matters in life with an appropriate attitude? That's got to be part of our lives too. Well, there's so much more to say here, but I need to move on. But I do want to mention to unbelievers, let me mention this to believers. This idea of being consecrated is the same idea of being sanctified, becoming more like Jesus. We're to become more like him in this life because the Lord himself has consecrated us. That's our pursuit of holiness, is to see our Lord and pursue him and become more like him. Let me mention this to unbelievers. As I said before, to this point in the story, right before the shout happens, all the way up to the shout, there is still time to repent. And that's where we are in this life. There's still time to repent because the shout hasn't happened yet. But finally, we're going to see that this is a victory that only the Lord could give. A victory that only the Lord could give. And we're going to see now the result of the nonsensical strategy. The strategy seems, I say that with trepidation, it's not nonsensical, but from a fleshly perspective, we're going to see what what happens in that strategy. So keep an eye out on the fulfillment of these purposes of God. So we've seen that it's for God's glory. We've seen that it's for the sanctification of his people. All of this is happening. Now we're also going to see that it's for the wrath that he pours out on the rebellious. And we're going to see that it's for the salvation of even the most likely to those that call on the name of the Lord. Look at at how all of those purposes are fulfilled in this. Let me read for you verses 20 through 27. This way we get to read the whole chapter here on a Sunday morning, 20 to 27. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, Oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers when Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time saying, Cursed! Before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. 
At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So was the Lord with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So the time to shout finally came, and shout they did. You know, when I was in Bible college, I had the chance to travel to many different churches, and it was a Pentecostal Bible college, a Pentecostal denomination. I got to see, I was from more of a conservative brand of Pentecostalism, but I got to see how many others approached Pentecostalism. And I, I remember the conversations of the young men and some of what I even saw. They, they would often talk about the, these incredibly uh, uh, emotional experiences where, where it was like the greatest thing if someone got up and ran along the top of the chairs. That was actually a thing, like running along the top of the Can you imagine running along the top of the chairs? Now, these were fixed-seat auditoriums. But if a young man jumped up and started running in the church, you knew the Spirit was working then. That was how they interpreted that. And there were many shouts. They talked about shouting all the time in the church. And, and, and I'm not saying they're all wrong. I don't think they were all wrong. I think there are times when the Lord stirs in us and our hearts are overflowing and we may want to shout. But the truth is there are many times for micro-shouts when God works or he provides or he meets us and our hearts just leap and out comes praise God from hearing that someone came to Christ or a baptism this morning to hearing about how God provides. You think of a Wheel of Fortune. If you visit my parents at the right time, they will always be watching Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. It's something about that age group and those shows. I don't know. But when someone wins on Wheel of Fortune, I mean, they just involuntarily, they don't care about their dignity anymore. You know, any sense of decorum goes out the window. They're just so excited to win $10,000 or $15,000 or a trip or whatever. They'll jump up and down, and that's part of the fun of watching the show is seeing how people react to these great things that happen to them. Well, think about that. There are times for these micro-shouts when God provides or when he delivers or when he, when he opens our eyes to truth about himself. I remember six years ago, right about six years ago, we were about a month from moving into this building. Do you remember? And right about six years ago, something happened, and we lost, about a month before we moved into our building, we lost about 20, over 20% of our annual income. And myself and the pastors, we had, we had based a plan, and that income was part of that plan. And we were looking at that moment six years ago, excited to come into the building, but thinking, my Lord, what have we done? And we had prayed and we had sought the Lord. We had asked for wisdom. We had sought counsel from many before we built this building. And so with trepidation, we went forward. There was really nothing else to be done, right? Well, the Lord knows what he's doing. And he's always working multiple purpose, all, purposes all at the same time, right? Right? Regardless of my fears or anxieties, my self-doubt, 
my concern, oh my, my Lord, did I miss it? Did I lead this church wrong? Have I misled the pastoral team? Despite all that, God is always working his good purposes, right? Let me tell you a little story. Jeremy Hetrick, one of our members here, he had been on a journey in his own life that took him to Souderton, to Pittsburgh, to York, to finally here in Lancaster. And that journey was a very difficult one. I let him fill in the, fill in the blanks for you sometime on that. It was hard. It was, it was hard for him. On that journey, he learns about a grant called the Lasco Grant, specifically for churches that are building. Had he come straight here, if, he had, if God had given him the life that he has now, which is a very good one, instead of all of that trial and, and travel, he would never have known about the Lasco Grant. But he comes to us at just the right time, tells us about the Lasco Grant. We apply for that in the fall of 2012. And Christmas time of 2012, before the year is even up, we move into the building in August. We have our grand opening there in September. Christmas time. We receive from a complete stranger the largest grant, the largest gift in the history of Crossway Church. And friends, it saved our bacon. I mean, it saved us. But it didn't save us. God saved us. That's why if you go around to near the, near the other stairwell, you'll see a little picture of a man. Um, I believe his name is John Lasco. I forget his first name. That God used to provide for Crossway Church. Always working his purposes in the life of Jeremy Hetrick and his family, in the life of Crossway Church, in the life of every one of us here. And you know what? In six years in this building, we have never missed a payment. We have never been late on a payment. We are ahead on our payments. All of that in the provision of God. Now, now this building is really small in, in, in the, picture, the big picture of all that God is doing. It's, it's, it's not... It's not a, a very a weighty matter, but it serves us, doesn't it? Because it's material and we can see it and we can remember the history and we can remember those moments and we think about the money and the big numbers. But what does it teach us? That God's at work doing all kinds of glorious things all at once, all the time. And those are good times to shout. I remember when we received the Alaska grant, the relief in my soul I praise God. And I, I believe you did too. You know what? All of these micro-shouts and all of this provision of God and all these works that he's done up to this very moment, they all point to the day of the final shout. The final shout. When we see the Lord, when he returns, we are going to shout the shout of Israel. Now what that means for the unbeliever is that patience has ended. There's no time left that the terrible holy wrath of God is coming. You don't want to wait for the moment of proof. And remember what happens here in Jericho, that when the walls come down, you get the sense of this large army almost encircling the entire city as they march around it. And the walls come down flat, which I mentioned before that the archaeologists have found that these brick mud walls had collapsed in the Bronze Age. 
Well, when those walls come down, guess what? There's no obstacle between the army of God's wrath and the object of God's wrath. They don't have to go around. They don't have to find a way in. They just go straight in. You know what that's communicating? The quickness, the decisiveness, the completeness, the absoluteness, that when God's wrath comes, there is no escaping it. It's from every angle. There's nowhere to hide. God himself paves the way for his army. It was his commander that brought those walls down. And so don't wait for the day of wrath. But this also means that for those that trust the Lord, that those have, who have trusted in the command, commander of the army of the Lord, those that belong to Jesus, their salvation. Think of Rahab, the least likely. She's not majestic. She's not royalty. She's not in the upper social classes. She doesn't live in the palace on the inside. She doesn't have a place of high standing. She doesn't have a lot of resources. She's a prostitute. Immorality is her way of life. She lives on the wall, the least protected of the people of Jericho. And yet grace comes to her to show that God forgives every sinner that comes to him and cries out to him. And not only that, but she takes that message from the spies, that message of grace and salvation, who say to her, anyone in your house is going to be saved on that day of wrath. And she tells her family and everyone with them, anyone who will listen, she tells, and whoever believes her message is saved and safe inside that house. And you know what? They're going to have a pathway directly into the people of God. In a sense... The destruction of Jericho is their baptism because God's wrath comes and they're saved through it. Come to the outside of the camp and they're going to have to go through some purifications. But then they're going to join the people of Israel. The scripture says Rahab lives with them to this day. You know, obviously that meant during her lifetime. That's when this writer is writing. But in a sense, she lives among God's people to this day, right? Because she's with the Lord right now. And even more importantly, one of her heirs, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is present with us right here, right now. Salvation comes to everyone who trusts the Lord. And and so we need to trust him. And not only that, we need to share with everyone we can. Anyone who's in our life, try to bring them into the house, into the house where they will be saved, to trust the Lord so that when wrath comes, when the horn blows and the shout goes up, they also are saved. You know, Don Garber, our director of outreach and evangelism, he's going to be holding evangelism training in the fall. I'd encourage you even now to begin thinking about attending that Vital Life course. It's going to be a workshop where not only are you learning about tools that you can use to, to help you just share that Jesus Christ died for sinners and he lives. There's going to be a tool that you can use. It's going to train you on that. But you'll be praying and asking God to give you opportunity. And you'll be seeking to grow and being aware of these opportunities. And everyone near you, you can reach out to and bring into the house with you to be saved from the wrath of God. Let me point out one more note to you before we close in song. And I'll ask Doug to come. You you see here that Joshua had fame. Joshua was given fame. Isn't that fascinating? 
We've talked about this last week. We talked about it this week. One of the big purposes of God in all of this is to bring glory to himself, that it wasn't for God to get on Israel's side, but it was Israel's job to get on God's side. The same for us, to make sure we're on God's page, that we're carrying out his will, that our life is geared toward his glory, that we're not saying to him, God, I need you to do this for me, but he's saying to us, I need you to do this, and we're saying, yes, Lord, your purposes prevail. That's a big part of this, is his glory. But look what happens when we live for his glory, when we trust and obey. We also receive honor. And we receive honor for that very thing. Joshua wasn't honorable outside of God. Joshua was honorable because he trusted and obeyed the Lord. And God gives him honor for that. Is there any honor on the face of the earth that's worth anything? Other than the honor that the Lord gives. That's the only honor that matters. And so to have the Lord honor you, that's worth its weight in gold. It's worth, it's invaluable. It's worth everything. And when you trust Him, when you trust Him in this life, when you live with a trust in Him, when you take that interpretive grid of who God is, knowing who he is, knowing that he's working all of his good purposes at once. I can't see them. It's okay. I know this. I see him, and I know this about him. He's bringing it all together in a glorious way. His glory, his salvation, even his wrath, his building me up and sanctifying me. He's bringing it all together, strengthening his church. He's bringing it all together all at once. And if I know that, that's all I need to know. And okay, Lord, I obey. I obey. When you know that, when you walk in that, the Lord will honor you. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.